topic slightly, but Disney, are you still taking Arabic lessons at Harvard? I'm not in Arabic class formally, but I'm in this Jewish studies class that has a reading component that's in Judeo-Arabic, which is Arabic, but written in Hebrew script. And so I learned the Hebrew alphabet and it's like, we're reading these primary sources that are from Jewish communities living in Cairo in like the ninth to 13th century. Um, that's crazy. I didn't even know that this like existed until I saw it in the course catalog. So if you have any questions about Jewish life in the Islamic ruled Middle East from like 800 to 1200. <laughs> I have newly found insights to that. <laughs> I didn't get the chance to prepare questions about Jewish life in the Islamic-ruled Middle East, so it's a good thing that's not the topic of this episode. Rather, it's how Sarah Beisner and Destiny Magnet, both class of 2022, came to be having this conversation. Sarah and Destiny are Truman scholars, prestigious, federally funded scholarship for graduate school, awarded to undergraduate students for their outstanding leadership abilities, academic excellence, and above all, commitment to public service. In 2021, the year Sarah and Destiny received the award, 845 students were nominated by their institutions of learning. 62 were selected. But the Truman is so much more than numbers. It's about an unwavering belief in the power we hold to make a difference in the world and what it takes to make the change we dream of a reality. Sarah and Destiny were generous enough with their time to sit down and share stories from their time at Grinnell, what goes into applying for the Truman, and the incredible work they are doing today. From the Center for Careers, Life, and Service at Grinnell College, I'm Nicholas Lampietti. Stay with us. And just a quick note, we were joined on this call by Sarah's dog, Maggie. Truman adjacent, she had a lot to say. We apologize for any background noise. Well, thank you guys so much for being here with me today. It's wonderful to connect after so much so much time communicating via email. So to start, um, if you could please both introduce yourselves and tell me a little bit about what you do. Yeah, I can start. So I'm Destiny Magnet. I was class of 2022 at Grinnell, so I just graduated last spring. And among many things, I am currently a student at Harvard Divinity School, where I my area of focus is religion, ethics, and politics. Um, I also am working part-time as a grant manager for a small NGO called Bellwether International, which provides humanitarian aid and peace-building funding for organizations and individuals through the lens of promoting and advocating for freedom of religion or belief internationally. Um, and so I'm sort of really living at the intersection of religion and public life. I'm also a graduate assistant in Harvard's religion and public life office. Um, and so really thinking about the ways that religion is impacting public space, whether it's through media or education or diplomacy and international relations. And that's sort of the world that I live in, both as a student and a practitioner. And so that's a little bit about me. Hi, so my name is Sarah Beisner. I was in the same class at Grinnell as Destiny. So I just also graduated in the spring. My life sounds a lot calmer than hers nowadays, though. Um, I'm a paralegal at Children's Rights. It's a nonprofit law firm in New York City that does civil rights class action litigation on behalf of kids in the child welfare system. So 
I spend most of my day each day doing like research tasks, helping prepare lawsuits, helping with tasks related to the litigation, and then taking a lead on monitoring active settlements to make sure that states are complying with the changes they need to make to their child welfare systems. So, well, those are, I, I can't wait to, to dive into more, uh, more of what that looks like, but would you mind sharing a little bit about your time at Grinnell? Maybe how you guys met each other, majors and activities, really any things that you want to share? Yeah, it's funny. Destiny and I had a really large overlapping friend circle, but never actually met each other until the Truman application process started. So we definitely met through the Truman. I was a psychology and Spanish major, and I think I'll let Destiny talk about hers, but she wasn't those majors. Um, so we didn't overlap in classes really. At Grinnell, like I had a lot of really close friendships that I really valued both while at Grinnell and now even since graduating. And like that for me is the defining memory of being at Grinnell. But of course, I really liked my classes, research opportunities. Like I did a year and a half long map that was really influential in what I'm doing now. Yeah, I think Grinnell was really interesting in the way it was like very much a create your own adventure kind of college education. Um, and I think it like empowered me to consider different paths than I would have otherwise. I came into Grinnell wanting to be a practitioner, like a social worker. And Grinnell exposed me to the idea that there's more to reform than just participating in a system. Going off of Sarah's, I think, very apt choose your own adventure metaphor. I think that that's totally, totally true. Um, and that's why people have such unique experiences there. And so my like chapter one of create your own adventure um, was being assigned to live on Maine 4th, which I don't know at the time um, was like quite a cultural thing. And I feel like really, I hope it still is. And so that really was my early like identity is that I would be like, oh, I live on Maine 4th. And people would be like, oh, I know Maine 4th. It's been around like the lore. And so I think that that was a really early influential, though, like sort of random thing. And then that grew into really deep friendships. My best friends to, that I still talk to to this day were the people who lived next to me and across the hall from me on the top floor of Maine. And then from there, I sort of, I was a religious studies major. Um, and then I had two concentrations. The first was in peace and conflict studies. And the second was in SAMESA, Studies in Africa, the Middle East, and South Asia, which is a pretty new concentration. We were the first class to have graduates in it. It's been around for just a couple of years. That was mostly centered around Arabic for me. I studied abroad in Jordan in the fall of 2021, um, so my, my fourth year because of COVID. And then from a research perspective, I really immersed myself in religious studies in the religious studies department. I was Caleb Elfamine's research assistant on mapping Islamophobia for two and a half years, so more than half of my time at Grinnell. I worked with him and he became such a close mentor and friend. And the work that I did on that project is still really, really relevant to the work that I do every single day um, in graduate school and in life. And then I also did a map in the summer of 2020 with Henry Reitz, who's also in religious studies. And I was looking at gender and youth programming in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, uh, which I also see becoming more and more relevant to the public sphere and like thinking about internal diversity of religions and how we talk about religion and its relationship both to peace and to violence. And so that was sort of a little bit of my Grinnell origin story and a bit of the choose your own adventure aspects, some of the later chapters that carried me through my time in Grinnell. I too was assigned to live in Maine 4th uh, oh last God. year. I that you lived on Maine 4th, that's neat, because I like, I remember Maine 4th because I was always on Maine 3rd. <laughs> 
Yeah, we loved the main culture. Okay, so maybe fast forwarding a little bit, um, can you tell me about your first sort of encounter with the Truman? There were these all-campus emails sent around, and I honestly didn't really open them at first, but then mm-hmm. Anne, I think, asks, like, faculty and staff to, like, ask students to apply if they think they would be, like, a good fit. And my advisor and my cross-country coach both emailed me and were like, hey, like, this seems like something that would be a really good fit for you. And the info session happened to be at a time when I was free. So I was like, I'll just go to this. Like, it can't hurt. And that's when I met Anne. And actually, Destiny was at the same info session. And it's the first time I really gave any thought to applying for the Truman. And it was still, like, not confident that I would because at the info session, Anne describes this, like, very involved, long process And I was just like, do I really want to do that with a whole year of my college? But God, I did. Yeah, I came to Anne for the first time in my first year, which I'm so grateful that I was turned on to her that early. Um, My tutorial advisor, actually, sometime in one of our meetings, I don't know if it was in the fall or the spring, Justin Thomas in theater and dance was like, I don't know, we were talking about something and he was like, you should go see Anne Landstrom. And I was like, I don't know who that is. But I went on Handshake and like made my first exploratory appointment. And we chatted about a lot of things. The Truman was one of them. And so then it was sort of on my radar then. And then when I started exploring more, getting similar emails from faculty members in my second year, uh, and Sarah and I ended up at the same info session. When I heard more about it, I realized that I actually had a friend from high school who had won the Truman a couple of years before and was like, oh, that's that thing that that Sam got. And so I ended up talking to him about it a little bit, deciding that it was a good fit. And then, yeah, just diving in from there. So let's talk about something that makes the Truman pretty unique, which is the cohort and that you're spending your year with this with this group of people. So what is it like to be a part of this group? I think that the cohort was one of the most amazing and like valuable parts of the application. And it's something that I've learned since interacting with the broader Truman Scholar cohort um, since winning that is really unique to Grinnell in that the nominees get to know each other and each other's applications like really, really intimately and closely. And so those relationships end up being super valuable, not only as a way to get feedback on your essays, because the application is quite involved um, because it's so long and you kind of can become a little labored or a little bit blocked when you're reading through the same essay over and over and over again. And so having fresh eyes and like several pairs of fresh eyes from people who are likely not at all or like very tangentially in the same area of focus or like subject matter as you are was super valuable. I know that there were several times where Sarah and then Danielle and Shireen, who were the other two in our cohort, would read something and they'd be like, this maybe makes sense if you know a lot about religion or religious studies, but like, I think you should clarify this for the outside audience. And so having that kind of feedback, as well as just like brainstorming conversation partners and Anne, of course, guiding the whole thing, she's amazing, was I think probably the most valuable part of the process to me. And I think I owe a lot to Anne and the rest of the cohort for making my application as strong as it was. But I think the thing for me that was the most helpful about having this cohort was like the accountability of there's someone every week who's going to read a draft. And so I need to write a draft because I'm the type of person who otherwise would have, the application was due in February, I would have written it the last week of January and I probably would have done very little proofreading and I would have submitted it. And maybe that would have worked out, but probably not. 
we would often have like our cohort meetings would be like two people pair up, read each other's drafts and give each other feedback. If I didn't have a draft, I was like disappointing and letting down the other person. And so it forced me to work consistently in a way I know for a fact I would not have otherwise. Now that we've talked a little bit about the cohort, can we talk about the application in itself? What does sort of the process entail for, you know, both joining the cohort and then actually putting together such a such an array of, of materials? I think if you summarize the process in one word, it would just be long. So it starts with a campus process where you have to write basically abbreviated versions of the essays that you would write for the normal process. You write basically a mini application, which are then given to like a panel of faculty who review it. I think generally speaking, everybody who submits an application is given an interview in addition to their written application. And you interview with three Grinnell professors. Um, And it's meant to kind of simulate the Truman interview, which is like very subject intensive. And then from there, the faculty review committee selects four nominees because that's how many students Grinnell can nominate. And when you're selected as a nominee, you have to commit to doing these cohort things throughout the year. And then the real like Truman process is the same thing, but like on steroids, there's like 10 essays. They're all pretty short, but that makes them maybe more stressful because like you have a really small space to communicate like a pretty large idea. And then there's a policy proposal. So actually there's 14 questions because I remember question 14, is there anything else you'd like to add? So there's 14 questions, including a policy proposal where you have to like write a proposal for the issue you care about and then respond to like imaginary critiques of your policy. And then there's like getting recommendation letters, which I think you needed two. No, you need three because you need one for each category of things like leadership, academics, and public service. So it's a long process. It goes on for months and months. And then you get selected maybe, as Destiny and I did, as finalists. And that means that you now have an interview and the interview is just, it's the craziest thing. And so for the interview prep, we had to like do mock interviews first with Anne and each other. And then with Anne and Yesenia Ayala, who was a scholar a few years ago. And then with a panel of faculty, including one that we chose ourselves. Yeah, it's, it's very involved. I, I think Sarah summarized it really, really well. I think I'll add that the essays Though individual, the important part of them is you really want to use all of these like 14 essays and a policy proposal to ultimately tell a story about where you've been and where you want to go. And so some of the essays are pretty straightforward. It's give us an example of your leadership. Give us an example of your public service, because these are sort of the three tenets that the award is built off of. It's a commitment to public service, academic excellence, and like potential for leadership and to be a change maker. But the application also asks you to think pretty far into the future. So it asks you about graduate school. It's much more than just a scholarship, but at the end of the day, it is like $30,000 for a graduate degree. And so they want to know like how you're going to spend that money. So you have to write about as a second or third year about what kind of graduate school you want to attend. And then you have to write about what you want to do in five years after that. And then in 10 years after that. And so it forces you to think about the future in a way that I think is really productive and useful, but that most people just like don't get around to doing. And so I found that to be really, really valuable in planning and thinking about what do I really want to get out of the next 10 years of my life? What values are at the foundation of what I want to get out of the next 10 years of my life? Um, and then even beyond that. Yeah. Also happy to talk about my interview. Yeah. So do you guys want to share, share a little bit about the interview um, itself. And then maybe, maybe after that, uh, if you're comfortable, I'd be really interested to hear your policy proposal. 
Sarah and I were really lucky and that we got to go through it together. We were also in the same region. So the, the interviews are organized by region. Um, and there's about one scholar per state usually. So we were competing in different states. I'm Kansas and she's Iowa, but we were in the same region. So we had the same interview panel. We got to sort of debrief together. We got to be nervous together before the interview. And that was something really, really valuable that most people don't get to do. Um, and so uh, I thought that that was also super helpful. Um, my interview, looking back, is sort of a blur, but I do remember that they didn't ask me all that much about the contents of my policy proposal or application. There was like one question at the very beginning that's like, isn't religion like used for violence? And I knew that they were going to ask that and I kind of got through it pretty quickly. My nerves wore off. But I will say the the one question that they asked me that I did not expect that like knocked me off kilter a bit was, you don't have to answer this, but we're curious about your own religious background. And I was like staggered because I was like, I don't think you're like, are you allowed to ask that? And that's why they prefaced it with the, you don't have to answer this. But I ended up giving just like a little spiel about being from Kansas and many flavors of Christianity and like how that impacted the work that I um, was doing then and then now have continued to do today. But overall, they are really looking for, at least in my experience, which I think was better than some, like some were like, I sobbed after my interview, like I, they were so mean to me, I think it went so badly. Um, and I found it to be not quite that intimidating, but definitely they were looking to challenge and find out the way that you think. They want to see how well you think on your feet, how much of a critical thinker you can be, how you can take positions that you maybe don't agree with. And so I found it to be less about even the contents of the application or the getting to know you and more about really getting to the core of like what makes you tick and like why you're passionate and like how well you can apply and articulate those passions into like real change. Similarly, they didn't ask as much. We were prepared to like really defend our policy proposal. And they did ask me a few questions. They asked me if states would be willing to put in like the necessary resources to provide a proper oversight. And so then I kind of had to explain like, maybe they wouldn't, but here's how you can kind of enforce that, um, which is funny because my job now is all about forcing states to provide proper oversight. They also challenged me on like why I seem to want to address like symptoms of a problem and not addressing the causes. And so they wanted to see if I had like really thought through what I wanted to do and like the most effective way to address the issues that I care about. I like personally found it really enjoyable. I usually hate interviews because I hate talking about myself. And I really liked that this interview was like a chance to defend my ideas rather than to be like, oh, I did this and I had XYZ experience. Like, I hate that. I'm, and I hated writing the treatment application largely for that reason. But the interview itself was so much fun. Like I, I was running on a high the rest of the day from it. I was, it was really good. But one thing that really shocked me was they asked me, they said, one of your recommenders mentioned this. It was something I had not written about in my application at all. Like I hadn't even put it on my like list of activities. And one of my recommenders had apparently mentioned it in their essay and they asked me about it. So that was really interesting. It showed that they were paying a really close attention to detail and reviewing our applications that I didn't like anticipate. Yeah. And then on the policy proposal side, my policy proposal in short, in the State Department, there is a special envoy for monitoring and combating anti-Semitism. And so my policy proposal was essentially to create a similar oversight organization to monitor instances of Islamophobia under the same statute and this is the same department, et cetera. Um, and something that's interesting is that 
actually like six months after I went through the whole Truman process, Representative Ilhan Omar actually proposed this on the floor, like in a bill for Congress, which I was like, haha, I told you that this was a good idea. It hasn't been created yet. I think that the bill, it takes things like an eternity to get through Congress and then to actually be implemented, but maybe it'll actually come into fruition uh, soon enough. That would be cool. But yeah, I was kind of drawing on my work from mapping Islamophobia, thinking about religious freedom and like where there are oversights, where things are lacking, where there are gaps without getting too into foreign policy. That's what I decided. My policy proposal is not something I agree with anymore. The issue I like centered my application around was like child welfare and juvenile justice system reform and how like broken the systems are and how harmful they are to both children and families. And I wrote my application about how there's a shortage of foster families, which results in like really severe placement instability. And I talked about the Family First Services and Prevention Act, which was passed in 2018 and basically changed the structure of federal reimbursement for foster care for states. So states can pull down funding to fund their state foster care systems under certain conditions. It's kind of like, other things like Medicaid, where like the state gets reimbursement from the federal government if they like follow specific conditions. And so foster care is like that. And basically the federal government said, okay, we're going to increase funding for prevention services or like family preservation services that will allow kids to stay in their families, which is a part of the bill I agree with. And then we'll stop funding all group homes except for QRTPs, qualified residential treatment programs. And my essential argument was we should amend the Family First Preservation and Services Act to allow states greater flexibility in using group homes because older youth might do better in a group home, an open group home, not like a closed one, but like an open group home with six other kids that's more stable than moving from place to place. And now I see like what I was really thinking of is like supervised apartment living, which is a program that exists that can be reimbursed through a different funding structure than a group home would be. And so now I would say like the federal restrictions on the use of group homes is good because states have been like over relying on group homes for years. It's interesting the way that when you get into the work, your perspective on the issues change. So talking sort of more on a, I guess it would be a sentimental level. What was it like to sort of hit that submit button um, and be done with the interview? And then if you could also sort of throw in timeline here for me. And then when you heard. Yeah. So we submitted our application in early February. And then about two weeks later, we heard back that we were finalists. And then it was like a two month window between that and our interview. I think our interviews were in April. And then we found out, maybe our interviews were in March, but we found out like, again, two weeks after the interview that we have been selected as scholars. And it's really funny because the president of your university finds out, not you. And then they call you to notify you. And usually like there's only one person who like won in a given year. And so you like, you don't know why the president is calling you, but it was during the pandemic and they like scheduled a Zoom call with us individually, but both Destiny and I had interviewed. So the second I got an email being like, we want to schedule a meeting with you and Ann Harris. I was like, Destiny, did you get the same email? And she was like, yes. And we were like, okay, well, there's no way they're calling us to tell us that we didn't get the scholarship. I think we kind of like spoiled the surprise for ourselves. But then Ann Harris called us and, and, Anne, Anne Lantrum, Anne Harris, and they told us, and then uh, they asked us to not tell anyone until the official announcement was made, except for like really close friends or family. And so I think I called my, 
ex-boyfriend like my boyfriend at the time first and then I think maybe after that I called my mom oh and my recommenders I took my recommenders right away everyone else I waited until it was like officially announced who had received the scholarship I texted Caleb Elfamine and Henry Reitz first because they are two of my recommenders and I'm very very close to them and so I remember texting both of them and then like calling I think my parents on a group call probably and my brother shortly after that so I do remember telling a couple of my friends from Maine 4th, they like got me a bottle of champagne and we celebrated that night and kept it like in our little COVID bubble going from there. So it was really cute. This is all happening at the end of your third year, coming off of a huge high. So what what next? You guys are both doing doing very different things currently. And what was what was the process to get there? Well, I and, and this adds to a bit about the larger trimming community. So in addition to the award. The community is something that I think is so, so valuable. I did the Summer Institute, which is an optional piece of the award, which is the summer after you graduate. So not immediately following winning the award, but after like a year later, you finish up your senior year or there's a couple of people in the cohort who graduated early and then were starting law school or whatever else. But you gather in Washington, D.C. Everybody's doing different internships. Um, You're with the cohort of scholars from your class. And you like live in a dorm at GW together. And that was really, really wonderful. I made so many like dear, dear friends who I talk to like every single day. They're already like some of the people who I turn to when I'm like, I don't know what's going on. I don't know what is coming next. Or I don't know if I should apply for this. Like there's some of the people who I will text or call or talk to. And so it's really crazy to be in this community where people are doing such drastically different things but have these underlying values that sort of bring us all together. And so that was really, really sweet and helped connect me to the broader Truman community before starting graduate school. And then I'm using my Truman money for my master's degree at Harvard Divinity School. Now I'm actually doing the exact program that I wrote I was going to do on my Truman application, which is actually extremely rare. Like there are very, very few people who one, go to graduate school right away. Like most people will work first or do other things first. I was sort of grounded in my path. I worked in the Office of International Religious Freedom at the State Department in the summer. I've worked for some NGOs. I was like, especially if I want to work for the government, I just want to knock my master's degree out and like get through it. And so I went straight through, ended up in the program that I said I was going to end up in, which yeah, hardly ever happens. We'll see if I continue on the path of my application. I wouldn't say it's out of the question. I think some little things might be altered, but it's really kind of been a process of continuity and relationship building and understanding more about what drives me and motivates me to be in the world and in service in the way that I am. Yeah, so I think I kept my options open for as long as possible. So the Truman Foundation sends out a list of a list of placements um, looking specifically for Truman summer interns, but also there's the Truman Albright Fellowship Program, which is like a year long and you're employed directly by whatever organization you're working with. There's like a year of programming in the DC area for Truman Albright Fellows. And so that to me seemed more feasible than the internship. And there was one with the Administration for Children and Families in the Department of Health and Human Services. 
So I applied for that. But at the same time as I was applying for that, I was applying for jobs. And basically throughout my last two years at Grinnell, every time I saw an or a nonprofit organization mentioned anywhere, whether it was in like an article from a friend, whatever, I heard something mentioned. I saw something on someone else's LinkedIn that looked interesting. I would write it down and then I would go to the organization website and I would like read about how they did their work. And I would try to figure out, does this organization align with my values? And if they did, I put them on like a little list. And then when it came time to apply for jobs, which was like January, February, I went through every one of those organizations and I looked at their website and I looked at their jobs page to see if they were hiring positions that I was qualified for and interested in working. And so that was like my primary way of applying for jobs. And then besides that, I kept an eye out on LinkedIn and Handshake and I like applied for a ton of jobs. And even at some point I applied for so many things that like I was turning down interviews because I was like, I'm realistically not interested in this position enough to waste everyone's time with an interview. But yeah, so I was like keeping options. I was interviewing for Truman placements. I was interviewing for fellowships and then I was interviewing for full-time jobs. In early April, I got my job at CR, which is where I work now. And at that moment, like I had to decide, okay, I know I have these like Truman things that are kind of hanging in the balance that are most likely going to come through. So I could do the Truman summer stuff or I could take this job. And I just decided that the certainty of the job was what I really needed at that moment. And I like needed something where like I'm moving to one place and I'm not going to have to move again in three months. And I was just wanted that stability after like the pandemic and having that instability for years. So that played a huge role in my decision. That being said, CR is like an incredible organization. And I would never have considered the job that I currently do. And I'm a paralegal. Like I was so uninterested in law school, so uninterested in legal work. If I had seen paralegal before I saw children's rights, I wouldn't have applied for the position. I can say that confidently. I had my first interview and when they described the work, I was like, this sounds perfect for me. Like this sounds like something I would love doing every day. So I did the second interview and then I got more excited about it. And so by the time I got the offer, I was like, wow, this sounds perfect. So I took the job. Started in June, two weeks after graduating, have loved it. And when I started the job, I was still planning to get a PhD in public policy, which is what I wrote my Truman about. And it took about two months of working with attorneys nonstop and going to like court hearings and doing research and drafting briefs for me to be like, okay, no, like I want to go to law school. So I think I'm going to go to law school, which is a very new development. I told myself that I was taking nine months completely off anything academic. I wasn't going to study, I wasn't going to like engage with academics at all. And so I'm approaching the end of that nine months. And my plan is to start studying for the LSAT in January. You get three years of automatic deferral with the Truman. It's four, four years of automatic deferral. And then after that, you can still defer, but you have to like request the deferral. And so I'm using two years of deferral with the plan to start law school in the fall of 2024. And my position at my job is a two-year position, although I can extend it. Such an important part of the Truman scholarship is public service. And I'm curious sort of where that that developed for you? Um, is that something you, you've held your entire life? Are there any like really important memories or experiences that you feel like have impacted and or influenced you in that journey? Was that something you discovered at Grinnell? I mean, public service is everything to me. Like that's the driver of everything that I do in my life every day. And I found the Divinity School which is, if you told me 18 years old starting Grinnell that I was going to end up in divinity school, I would have looked at you like you were crazy. 
I say a lot, this has become sort of my like catchphrase that religious studies taught me to care about people in a way that I didn't know I was capable of. And I think that that developed over time, um, but also just there's something about it that people are so centralized in the work that it speaks to me. It's like if someone started speaking a language that only you understood or that it had just all made sense all at once. And that's sort of the way that religious studies felt for me for the very, from the very beginning. And so I've carried the values of that that are really humanistic, service-oriented, like care-centered, empathy-centered into my work in the classroom and then my work in the public sphere as well. And I think that they speak really well together. Now that I'm at Divinity School, the people that I'm around, I think are some of the kindest, most caring people that I've ever met in my entire life. The advice that I would give to someone thinking about applying for the Truman or thinking about how to get the most out of time at Grinnell is to just embrace gentleness. I don't think you have to be so hard and rigorous and sharp edged all the time. There's a place for that maybe, but giving myself permission to feel emotions and to feel vulnerability and to learn how to put those soft feelings into words and then into work, I think the most valuable thing that I got from Grinnell and I credited a lot to especially the faculty in in religious studies and the work that I did there. I think my advice is to be open to change. My path looks very different now than it did when I was a freshman. It looks very different from when I was in high school. And I think like there was some willingness to go with the flow that has served me well in life. I think in general, I've had a lot of like really positive experiences and connections come out of just talking to people. Like if I'm in an elevator with somebody not everyone is going to feel comfortable like just talking to a stranger. But for me, everyone has like a unique thing to contribute. They have their own experiences that I don't know about. And whether it's like a professional opportunity or if it's just telling me about their life, I feel like I've learned a ton from being willing to like engage with people and like build connections. I think Grinnellians can get really caught up in their own lives, in the hustle and bustle of like classes and work and extracurriculars. And they don't stop to consider whether they're talking to the people around them. See, Destiny is a lot more eloquent than me. I didn't have a word. I wouldn't have like described my career goals as like public service before the Truman. Like the Truman put that like language into my vocabulary and it's still not language I use very often. I grew up in a really like low income family that struggled a lot with addiction, um, a lot with violence and a lot with like the cyclical cycle of like child welfare system involvement and prison involvement. And there was like a lot of frustration and like a really overwhelming sense of unfairness. And I had to like make a decision when I was younger. Okay, well, what do I do with this unfairness? And what do I do with this anger? And and so I said, well, it's like a little late to fix the way that I grew up, but it isn't too late to fix the way that other people are growing up. And so that was my driving force going into college. But I was like thinking of it more of like a direct like service. Like I'm going to be a social worker and I'm going to help individual families access the resources that they need. And I'm going to be there for kids and I'm going to be like positive, consistent role model. But then I came to Grinnell and this shouldn't have shocked me, but it did. I had this like mind image in my mind of like what disadvantage looked like in society. And I learned that there were 50 other types of disadvantage. And like a lot of people like were struggling in like dissimilar ways from me, but that had the same root causes. And I was like, well, then like, if we could just like adjust the root causes, things would be better. And the transition from like wanting to do direct service to like wanting to engage in meaningful like systemic change happened gradually. And it took like a belief that I could do that. Um, and that happened through like a lot of specific classes I took at Grinnell, professors that I had like really close relationships with. 
But like by the time I was in my third year, I was like, direct service is important, but it's just reinforcing this hierarchy of who's most deserving of a place to live and like basic human rights. My like drive to do public service comes from a realization that like, the world is profoundly unfair and that profound unfairness has really affected my family. My family is objectively doing a lot better than other families. It's just like so frustrating to know that like this is what thriving and lower middle class looks like. Moreover, I despite having come from like a low income background, I'm still white and I'm still not affected by the systemic oppression that communities of color face in the US. And those people are even less represented at the level of like change making. I guess the long story short of this like rambling is like, I still am grappling with what public service means to me because I think that some of the way we define public service and the way that we center ourselves as like agents of change within the narrative of public service is harmful and it perpetuates the problems we're claiming that we want to solve. Because if you are like, if you make a career out of changing something, well, if it actually gets fixed, you don't have a career anymore. Like you're out of a job. Even if you like truly believe that you have a vested interest in like the system, you also have a vested interest in maintaining the status quo. And so I'm like constantly trying to challenge myself of like, okay, I'm doing this work, but what will I do if things are perfect tomorrow when I wake up? And so also in case you were wondering what I will do if things are perfect tomorrow when I wake up, which is not going to happen. But if it is, I'm going to be a kindergarten teacher. That's my, that's my plan B. I don't know if things will ever be perfect, but I do know that we have the best possible chance because of people like Sarah and Destiny. This podcast is brought to you by the Center for Careers, Life, and Service at Grinnell College. This episode was produced by Nicholas Lampietti. Our executive producer is Katie Kriegel. Find us online at career.grinnell.edu. Follow us on Instagram and on Facebook at Going Forth Podcast. Listen to more episodes wherever you get your podcasts. Go forth, Grinnellian. See you next time.